reject the ideology of globalism, and we embrace the doctrine of patriotism. Not only will this tax plan pay for itself, but it will pay down debt. There are moral and legal obligation questions that I think we'll have to wrestle with as a society. When we as people go wobbly on the truth, we go wobbly on America. All you have to do is look at the numbers, look at what we've done. And this is only the beginning. Good morning, Rochester. You're listening to Evidence of Design on 100.9 FM WXIR in Rochester. My name's Jason Taylor, host of Evidence of Design. I'm also joined in WXIR studios by my good friend and co-host, Matt Treadwell. Hello. Matt, did, are you coming through there? I don't hear myself. All right. Matt Treadwell? Hi. Any luck? Yeah. So that one works for you? Yeah. Awesome. I, I don't hear you for some reason, but that's all right. You're sitting four feet away from me. So well, I also can't see your thing. mouth move through your mask, so I'm just going to assume that you're talking. Yeah, that'll work. <laughs> Thanks, everyone, for tuning in to your uh, local grassroots community radio station where us, asper- us experts behind the board here just basically put two toasters together and try to figure out how to, to make an omelet. <laughs> so, hey, it's Saturday, June 26th, 2021. We are live here in WXIR studios. Great pleasure to be here. If you're tuning into Evidence of Design for the first time, or if you're tuning in again as a reminder, our show is all about critiquing income and wealth inequality. We think there's way too much economic inequality in society. For instance, the top 10% of wealthiest Americans own 70% of all of the wealth in the country. The bottom 50%, the bottom half of the population in America, controls essentially no wealth. It's like 1% to 2%. So there's, we're drastically unequal with who controls wealth. The same is true for income. The top 20% of wealthiest, or sorry, the top 20% of income earners in the United States takes in over half of all of the income per year. The bottom 20%, they only take in 3% of all of the income. Those numbers only get better every time you share them. <laughs> they somehow get worse. <laughs> I don't get it. But no. So we're very, very unequal when it comes to economics. But it's not just about a moral issue. It's not just, oh, wow, those numbers are just unfair because, wow, math is weird and the numbers are different than one another. No. It manifests in society. It manifests in power. Therefore, the wealthiest have gotten more and more political power and also social power as well, and they've re-engineered the political and economic system to benefit themselves at the expense of everyone else. So our show here, we investigate the causes and critique the effects of income and wealth inequality borne out by the past several decades of American policy that has foregrounded, that has prioritized, that has rewarded the free market and private gain at the expense of the public 
sector. That's what we do here in Evidence of Design. Thanks for joining us. On today's show, we will be talking about the results from the latest primary election that we just experienced this week. There were a lot of races on the ballot, including the mayor of Rochester, the school board in the city of Rochester, and also lots of county legislators. We'll talk about the results from that primary election. We're also going to get into news this week that the RPD, the Rochester Police Department, is bringing in federal support for the rise in crime in Rochester. Finally. (laughs) We were just waiting for this day to have more officers to help us get this city under control. Am I right, Matt? Yeah, it's about time. (laughs) Um, Sarcasm. So, you know, we're going to talk about why the RPD is saying they need this federal support. We're going to talk about uh, the extent to which crime has increased in Rochester and perhaps how effective or ineffective our solutions towards Rochester's crime rate is. And uh, spoiler alert, we're going to end up talking a lot more about, we're going to be talking about other things than crime in order to explain crime. Uh, Our lens is economic inequality. If you can provide people more access to economic opportunities, then we're going to have less crime. And if you think that people are poor because they're lazy and it's their own fault, then we have a different opinion than you. You're going to enjoy the next hour. (laughs) We have a different opinion than you. And there are some things that uh, governments could do that we as society can do together to help ensure that folks are better off and have access to greater economic opportunity and do not have to turn to crime or live in neighborhoods abetted by crime so often. That's what we're going to do on today's show. We'd love to hear from you. You can give us a call at 585-219-8889. Again, that's 585-219-8889. We're also live streaming on Facebook at our Radio EOD Facebook page. You can see us in WXIR Studios. Matt, we got some tunes pulled up. Oh, yeah. That's what I love to hear. So, folks, we'll be right back after a very short break. We're going to jump into the primary election results on Evidence of Design on 100.9 FM WXIR. Hang on. Cavern by Liquid Liquid. And this is Evidence of Design on 100.9 FM WXIR in Rochester. Folks, we just went through our first election of the year. Hey, it's always election season here in the United States. Primary elections just happened. We've covered them for the past several weeks. Most of the primaries available throughout Monroe County for registered Democrats. As a reminder, in New York State, you only get to vote in a primary if you're a member of a particular party. So for, let's say, Democrats on the ballot, you have to be registered with the Democratic Party in order to vote in their primary. just so happens that most of the folks up for election in this primary were contested seats on the Democratic line, and therefore we'll be just covering the uh, results from the Democratic line on this past primary. We're not going to be covering all of the results. If you want to see the results in total, check out monroecounty.gov forward slash elections, monroecounty.gov forward slash elections. Matt, I was able to vote. Did you vote? Yeah. Did you vote in person on the day of, or did you vote early? On the day of. I voted on the day of, too. I meant to vote early, and then I, yeah, I, 
I was out of town. <laughs> so <laughs> didn't do my math right, but I was able to vote the day of. It was totally great. There was a zero line, super easy. Bada bing, bada boom. My ballot was also very small, so <laughs> it was pretty easy to easy to figure out. But uh, I did have to do a lot of homework, especially for the county court judge seats. I was like, I don't know. And that's all right to do homework. Spend about two hours looking up the different platforms of the county court judges and try to figure out who to vote for. But it was that was pretty tough. Let's start, though, with perhaps the biggest ticket item. That is for the mayor of Rochester. Folks, you probably already know this, but the incumbent, Mayor Lovely Warren, is not in all likelihood going to be getting a third term as mayor because her challenger, Malik Evans, defeated her at a, basically a two-to-one margin, which is a pretty big margin for uh, these these local races in yeah. this manner, especially by an incumbent mayor, Lovely Warren. It's we, like 60%, right? 65%? Yep, according to MonroeCounty.gov forward slash elections, Malik Evans had 66% of the vote to Mayor, mayor Warren, 33%. Mayor Warren, though, has been... Uh, how should we say, uh, challenged by several negative news cycles over the past two years. She's had a rough run, folks. <laughs> it's uh, It's been a rough run from the, you know, indictment for campaign finance fraud <laughs> to uh, Daniel, the, 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 the cover-up of Daniel Prude to her husband. That was just unlucky. <laughs> This is all unlucky. To her husband, uh, apparently uh, being part of cocaine trafficking out of her own house. Uh, A lot of bad things. Inconvenient things, to say the least, if you're the mayor. Um, So, you know, who knows? uh, Who knows if the votes for Malik Evans were because people think that he's a compelling candidate and thinks that his vision is the best for Rochester? Or who knows if the votes for Malik Evans were just a, an anti-vote for, for Mayor Warren. An indictment. Right. So we shall certainly see Malik Evans is in all likelihood going to be the next mayor of Rochester and see how he comes off uh, campaigning. He's 41 years old, I believe. He has a history of rising through Rochester politics. His background is actually very similar to Lovely Warren's, which is very interesting. Uh, Malik Evans served on the Rochester City School Board as the youngest member ever elected. I think he was elected at like the age of 23. And then he went, on to, s- <laughs> then he went on to serve where he is now uh, in city council. So he's certainly got a prestigious in regards to local politics, political backgrounds, and we'll see what he brings to mayor. I'll be honest. I, I don't. I don't know much about Malik Evans's platform. I think he was he was playing his campaign very safe, and that he wasn't he wasn't really campaigning against Mayor Warren. There was no slander. You know, there was no. Uh, you know, Warren has really brought down the city with their corruption or you know alleged corruption. Blah 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 blah. It was mainly I'm going to bring a fresh start to the city with uh, transparency and economic mobilization and, and, and things of that nature. That's probably pretty appealing to people, having made national headlines multiple times last year for, you know, bad things. 
Yeah, and I think a lot of that, a, a, a lot of his statements too, were just like, you know, Rochester needs a fresh start. We gotta stop having these bad headlines because it's always it's always interesting when you pull up the New York Times or CNN or wherever else you get your news and you see Rochester. And you're like, oh, there's Rochester. Headlines. Oh, there's Rochester. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, <laughs> not for a good thing, you know. So yeah, that that is certainly challenging. And oh my God, I'm suddenly able to hear out of my headphones out of nowhere. Maybe my ears were clogged. I don't know. Yeah, maybe they just exploded again. Oh, this is awesome. Now I can, okay, now I realize you were really low this whole time. I'm sorry, listeners. I'm really low, too. All right, hopefully this is better if you're tuned in at home that you can hear us. This is why it's important to be able to hear yourself when you're on the air, because otherwise you have no idea what you're putting out. And guess what? When you're doing a radio show, you're only putting out audio. (laughs) If you can't hear audio, not very good, not very good. So, hey. That was the mayor of Rochester. This is this is a big deal. We'll see what happens uh, with Malik Evans's campaign and how he'll do the next couple months before the general election. Now you're not hearing buzzing, are you? Yeah, you are hearing buzzing. Uh huh. Like little like crickets in your head. Yeah. Do you hear it now? Yeah. That's not good. Okay, I don't know what's going on, so I'm sorry at home if you're hearing buzzing too. But I'm getting a lot of buzzing. We're doing it together. That's right. We're in this buzzing together. So, hey, let's talk about the school board as well. The Rochester City School District's Board of Education. <laughs> Good times. Um, th- there was a vote for three. There was around eight folks running. The winners of that election, the incumbent Cynthia Elliott, was voted back in. She had the most share of the vote with around 20%. Also, newcomer will be in, James Patterson. He's uh, formerly in law enforcement. And, and an author of several best-selling books. Yes, different. I'm, I'm sorry, this is James L. Patterson. Oh. James L. Patterson. And also Camille Simmons. She works for, uh, oh God, Rock the Future, I believe, advocating for, well, really youth outcomes in Rochester. This will be interesting to see how this board shakes up. The Board of Education has been, oh God, so fraught with disagreements and scandals over the past several years. I'm not saying it's the board's fault necessarily, but the RCD, RCSD, of course, has been another reason why Rochester has been in the news oftentimes with a bad thing. So uh, we'll see where these folks bring to the table. The RCSD is receiving hundreds of millions of dollars recently from federal and state relief. So the budget crisis of the RCSD is over in the short term. However, there's a lot of uh, there's been reports, especially from the children's agenda, that the RCSD has yet to fix their structural budget issues, meaning in the long term, the things that are producing the deficit for the RCSD remain. And so while in the short term, hey, remember all those bu- the budget crises that we were going through and all those teachers that were laid off and all those testimonies of kids and parents saying in the middle of the school year you're doing this and, and cutting back services? What's going on with that? Well, that's all over. That was a fun time. Austerity budget, folks. And now you get a lot of stimulus, budget crisis over, but structural issues may remain. RCSD graduation rates, of course, have increased ever so slightly over the past several years. There are positive trends in the RCSD, but it remains a district plagued by structural issues, such as the majority of its students living in poverty, being minority students, thanks to segregation and the history of redlining in Rochester. So it 
will still be challenging. And we as a society have to come together to figure out how to do that, how to, how to fix these issues with the RCSD. There is a, an op-ed every single day, <laughs> and whether it's the, the DNC or or city newspaper or whatnot about the RCSD and says, oh, it has so much, the RCSD gets so much money. How are the individual student outcomes so low? Or on the other side, well, the, the RCSD outcomes are so low because of structural issues. We need to fix those underlying structural issues, such as moving to a countywide schooling system, and back and forth endlessly we go. Matt, you and I on the show on Evidence of Design would side towards the latter argument, which is we need to fix more of the underlying structural issues countywide schooling not sure if that's like the best way to solve it but certainly would resolve the segregation and concentration of poverty and minorities in the same schools which study after study shows not good for student learning outcomes city council as well is the last piece that we'll cover there was about 100 people running for city council i wasn't one of them Maybe someday. There was 58 write-ins. I'm not sure anyone... That's not enough to get anyone to the top. (laughs) I love these write-ins. It's so great. Um, So for city council, vote for five. The folks who are most likely in a city council, though it's not super sure yet because there's still the general election, of course, Willie Lightfoot, long-term incumbent, was one of the top five for city council. Mitch Gruber, also an incumbent, is one of the top five for city council. Kim Smith, newcomer, member, uh, proponent of the local, uh, you know, Black Lives Matter movement and a lot of advocacy groups and also, I believe, um, the defund the police movements. She is also one of the top five, along with Stanley Martin. She definitely is one of the lead grassroots organizers for, say, Defund the Police and also the Black Lives Matter movement. It's been at the forefront of the organizing there and also featured on some national news stories about Rochester organizing. So far, Willie Lightfoot incumbent back in, Stanley Martin, newcomer, Mitch Gruber incumbent back in, Kim Smith, newcomer, and Miguel Melendez, he is the incumbent also back in as well. Most likely again, hey, Still got the general election, still have other, uh, you know, other lines like the Working Families Party, still has write-ins. So not saying anyone here is guaranteed, just saying the results of the primary election. So for all those who got out to vote, thanks so much for doing that. Voting's really important because power matters and people who are in positions of power matters. And the decisions people, the decisions that are made by people in power matters. So thanks so much for all of those who were able to vote. If you didn't get a chance to vote, guess what? November election is coming up. We'll, of course, announce it as it draws closer. Matt, we should remind folks that you were tuned in to Evidence of Design on 100.9 FM WXIR in Rochester. We have not yet covered the county legislature, and that's where I want to focus on now. We've just talked about city things, the county legislature. Oh, boy. County politics, Matt. Real interesting this past year. We did a whole show this February on Rochester politics over the past year, from um, <laughs> from the Cable Act to the the act that county Republicans proposed to essentially make it a crime to annoy police officers, to Democratic mm-hmm. infighting over who will be the next Democratic election commissioner, to the whole you know Daniel Prude saga 
to the uh, county budget and the supposed establishment of a slush fund <laughs> by legislators to uh, Mayor Warren's less than stellar response to Malik Evans challenging her for mayor saying that um, you know God is on our side and things like that to um, county legislator Ernest Wagler Mitchell sending unsolicited photos to uh, a lot of young women it's it's been um, and, and of course all the RPD stuff like pepper spraying a, a nine-year-old girl What a great year. <laughs> Interesting times with local politics. Hey, there's also a lot of good things, too. But um, let's talk about the county legislator be, legislature because there's a lot there. So in 2018, just as a reminder to folks, Democrats or Demo uh, Adam Bellow, who is the current county executive, was elected for the first time in over, say, 25 years as Monroe County's first Democratic executive. However, in the legislature, Republicans lost some of their majority, but retained the majority ship with one seat. So it was split government, Democrats' huge gang, county executive, Adam Bellow, first time in 25 years, not Republican control, county legislature, Democrats chipped away at Republicans' gang too, but Republicans retained leverage. However, Republicans were caucusing with several Democrats. We mentioned Erglis Flagler Mitchell. He was one of them who often caucused with Republicans. There was a few other folks. There was a four-member so-called Black and Asian caucus. These folks would often caucus with Republicans and cause a lot of trouble for the different Democratic establishments in Rochester, so sort of the bellow wing versus this other wing, and so on and so forth. So it caused, it's been causing a lot of problems for the bellow administration and some other folks to get things done, and it's created a lot of political headache locally with the whole infighting over who's going to be the next election commissioner with who, uh, with, with this whole slush fund thing, with, with, with Democrats working together or, or siding with Republicans. A lot, lot, lot of stuff going on. So that's why these county legislature elections were so important. Well, Ernest Flagler Mitchell was defeated, so he is not coming back to the legislature. Vince Felder, who was not always a member of this four-person caucus, but was the minority leader for the Democrats in the county legislature, he was defeated as well. That's a big deal. And Frank Keo, I don't, Frank, I don't know how to pronounce your last name. I'm sorry. Frank's Keo Festusly. Uh, <laughs> that's, yeah. Um, I'm sorry. Keo Fetlessy. Keo Fetlessy. Uh, so Frank was also a member of this Black and Asian caucus. He was defeated as well. So it seems that Democrats, while not, of course, yet, because it wasn't general election, Democrats are still in the minority, but assuming these newcomer Democrats end up actually winning the no November general election, then Democrats will, in theory, have a much stronger base and be able to get over the Republican so-called supermajority. Well, veto-proof majority. Right, veto-proof, yeah, that, essentially the supermajority, the veto-proof majority. So even if, let's say, County Executive Adam Bello vetoed something the legislator passed, well, if this, this four-person Democratic caucus joined with the Republicans, they could override Adam Bello's veto and essentially neuter anything he is trying to do. 
Essentially, the Democratic members of the legislature have been split in half for the last year and a half because of a Zoom call that went bad. Yes, (laughs) a lot of drama. Matt, I just want to remind us why this is important and why hopefully having a solidified Democratic you know, uh, opposition (laughs) base um, in Monroe County is really important. Matt, let's play a clip from Republican legislature majority leader Brian Marionetti and also the legislative president Joe Carbone. This is from 2019 when right after Adam Bellow was elected as the county executive, they proposed what was then known as the Cable Act, the checks and balances for legislative equality. The county, the county Republicans said that this would be an effort to ensure that there is equal power between the executive and the legislative branch. So it would take some power away from the county executive and give it to the legislature. Why was this interesting timing? Because, well, as mentioned, Republicans had control of all branches of government in Monroe County county executive and the legislature for 25 years and all of a sudden they're proposing this bill to increase so-called transparency and accountability and equal power between branches of government the moment a democrat gets into office in the county executive they said that hey you know this isn't about a democrat coming in it's just about ensuring a balance of power let's hear how they had to defend (laughs) the Cable Act after a reporter asked them locally, um, you know, why do this now? Matt, take it away. Negotiate that. If it doesn't move the needle, why'd you do it? Because we want to, it's our, we were voted in as the majority. The people kept us as the majority. We can't lose our teeth. We have to have some we have to have some power to govern. If we let the whole thing go, then why should we be in the majority? What about the appearance of taking power away from the county? This is not a power grab. This is just one more level of uh, one more level of it's transparency. One more level of transparency. And it's creating the co-equal branches. If I can expand just on what the president was saying. <laughs> this is not a power grab. This is uh, this is about transparency. It's uh, it's uh, it's about uh, uh, making sure that the uh, radical leftist Democrats do not en- uh, enact a socialist agenda, and uh, it's about making sure that we keep the boot of the police officers on the necks of everybody living in Rochester. It's it's amazing. That's my favorite political clip ever <laughs> it really is just like the the sheer look of terror that he gives the guy sitting next to him when he's like please help me out <laughs> what do i say please bail me out i have i have tangled my arguments in such a gordian knot <laughs> that i have no idea how to get out of this but lo and behold matt he was saved by the tried and true method in politics transparency and accountability We have a call coming in on Evidence of Design on 100.9 FM WXIR in Rochester. What's on your mind? Hi, uh, how's it going, everybody? This is Aaron from Chicago. Uh, Aaron from Chicago, and uh, I was just listening to the show. I was actually able to listen to it uh, for a a good amount of time before calling in, so I'm not completely blind on this. And, uh, yeah, Monroe County politics sounds awesome. I just wanted to say I love Matt's impression of that guy. I'd say it was spot on. Uh, really enjoyed it. 
Um, and I don't know, it just kind of seems like, you know, uh, uh, well, national politics are at local at this point, you know, sort of like as soon as, uh, you know, Democrats take some, some level of power nationally, then Republicans are always just, you know, coming up with uh, things in the name of transparency and whatnot to uh, try to slow them down. So, you know, I don't really, it, nothing's too surprising there, but I did kind of, since we we're talking about local politics, if I could derail the conversation a little bit and ask what you guys thought of India Walton's win as Buffalo mayor. I'm not sure how familiar you are with uh, her campaign or what went on there, but uh, yeah, I just wanted to get your guys' thoughts on that. Thanks, Aaron. Yeah, we were going to bring that up. You're referencing in Buffalo, New York, our neighbor all the way an hour to the west. India Walton is a, well, newcomer to the political scene, so to speak. She's not sort of a longtime incumbent. She's a self-described socialist and ended up on the Democratic line for Buffalo mayor, defeating who was anticipated to be the favorite in the race, Byron Brown, in in the Democratic primary this week. So uh, it looks like, if you know, if all things go according to history, that she would be the city's first female mayor and also the nation's first. I, I don't know where they got the statistic from. I'm reading this from WXXI News. The nation's first socialist mayor. In six decades. In Minneapolis, I think. In the Yeah, there's a mayor of Minneapolis in the 40s who I believe was the last uh, socialist mayor of a major American city. So, yeah, pretty pretty cool occasion. Who knows? You know, uh, I obviously wish her the best of luck. I can't imagine that politics in, in Buffalo is that much, you know, easier or better than, than Rochester politics. And, you know, I think overall mayors have a very sort of uh, a limited set of, of things they can control uh, because... You know, power is so diffused uh, in the U.S., like, you know, spread over national, local, state, everything. Like, governors, you know, seem to have a ton of power in their states. It's sort of like how, you know, in New York City, you know, the, the mayor's job is essentially just to be sort of like the public punching bag. You know, they can't really make uh, much progress happen, like, you know, with sort of state control of the schools, of the MTA, of pretty much everything. So I'd imagine similar to Buffalo, but yeah, I just thought it was pretty cool and I guess I wish her, you know, wish her the best of luck. Yeah, I mean, this basically means Matt and I are moving to Buffalo, I'm pretty sure. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm already there. Because, <laughs> you know, socialist mayor. I, I always wonder, you know, eventually we're going to run out of, like, the first something. You know, this is the first <laughs> mayor. This is the first. And I don't mean this in a, in a negative way. I think it's really great that um, more people who have, historically not been able to hold positions of power are getting that. So, you know, I, I just read that India Walton would be the city's first female mayor. And we, we've heard a lot of that, you know, first, um, you know, Kamala Harris is the first uh, female vice president and also, you know, minority vice president. That's really important. So what I'm about to say is not to negate those. But what I am, what I mean to say is, you know, nation's first socialist mayor in six decades, someone should have taken that over. Someone should have just claim themselves to be socialists a couple of years ago, you know, and said... Um, yeah, they, they would have gotten a nice nice little reporting on being the first in, in a while. Right. Um, I, but the I think the answer to your question is you just got to get more specific, you know, because, <laughs> like, people were saying, oh, Kamala's the first half-black, half, you know, Indian female vice president. So if you just, like, get more and more specific, then everybody's the first at everything. Right. That's and, a little solution to your, to your problem. <laughs> for political conundrum. Um, Aaron, I know you, you know, though you're Aaron from Chicago right now, and, and you're calling into evidence of design on 100.9 
FM WXIR in Rochester. You're also often Aaron from Queens. We are going to pivot to the second half of today's show to talk about crime in Rochester. There's been around a 50 to 100% increase in homicides and shootings in Rochester uh, this year and last year compared to, say, the last eight or so years. My understanding, there's there's been increases in crimes, per se, across the entire country, New York City included. Uh, we, the RPD, the Rochester Police Department, this week announced that they are going to bring, be bringing in support from the federal government by the marshals, the federal marshals, to help to uh, tamp down on crime and to try to go after uh, repeat offenders and offenders who they think are uh, doing most of the criminal activity. Do you uh, if, right. do you know about crime in New York City? Are you experiencing a similar thing around there? You're in Chicago right now. I know Chicago has had a lot right. of shootings too. What are your thoughts on on, on maybe the RPD or, or so called the well, increasing crime? Well, I don't have a lot of personal experience with crime. I haven't been murdered very often, um, but. I'm glad you did ask about that, because I do have actually a solution uh, to this whole crime issue. Uh, And that's only because I pay close attention to my, you know, personal hero, Ben Shapiro. And uh, (laughs) he was commentating on his Twitter feed, as he is wont to do, about the New York City mayor's race. And there was a question in a debate recently where, uh, uh, in the primary debate, where they asked the candidates, uh, what is something you would ban from New York City? And there were various answers, sort of like, uh, you know, failing schools, uh, so large soda pop, I don't know. <laughs> there were some Bloomberg-style answers in there, too. And Ben Shapiro took a look at that, and he uh, posted a tweet that was like, notably, one thing that nobody said, crime. Nobody said they would ban crime. Mm. So my solution is to simply make all crimes illegal. <laughs> and at that point, you know, no one would legally be able to commit any and that would really solve all, all uh, crime issues. And that is a uh, free out of the mind of Ben Shapiro to, uh, to solve those issues. But seriously, though, um, <laughs> you know, I, what my understanding of the, of the historical trends are is that this, you know, there certainly has been an increase. But, you know, saying those words sort of elides the bigger picture issues of what of the bigger picture understanding of what that means, what that means. And uh, my understanding is that, like, it's sort of just, you know, an increase in the sense of, like, a little ripple in a pool compared to, like, you know, during the uh, 70s, 80s, and 90s, you know, the massive tidal wave that was crime at the time. So, you know, saying there's an increase in crime, it needs to be kept in the the larger historical picture. And also with the understanding that, you know, we just went through a major socioeconomic you know, hit to society in the form of coronavirus that put tons of people out of work, destabilized society in a lot of ways, and also kept people, you know, uh, essentially trapped in their homes and unable to travel for more than a year now. That's going to have some, you know, major uh, effects on society that, you know, is not entirely going to be able to be understood. So, you know, if as society sort of returns to normal, you know, this sort of un... uh, un, uh, in ideal normal that uh, we have had before, you know, in such an imperfect society that we don't, but as it returns to normal, then it's possible that, you know, new wave of crime could become leveled out just sort of naturally. And certainly, like, you know, throwing more money at the police and just hoping sort of, you know, a massive increase in militarization beyond, you know, some sort of in the insanely high levels that we already have, I don't think, obviously is going to be a productive use of 
society's time. And I, I mean, I don't have any solutions to this other than saying, you know, try to keep it in a uh, larger historical context. And obviously, you know, the the best solutions to crime other than, you know, outlawing crime <laughs> is uh, <laughs> obviously making sure people have, you know, full support in, in society, like have, have employment, have education, have resources they need, have, you know, happy, productive lives and just, you know, make sure that uh, we can support uh, that you know they're getting as much support as possible and you know obviously if you have a massive un- underemployed or unemployed underclass that's just struggling to get by every day then that's going to lead to crime and so you can either improve society for everybody or you can you know i guess just continue having the world's uh largest uh, uh you know prison system yeah. uh ever you know both per capita and by numbers when i you know it seems pretty obvious to me which one of those is better Aaron, thanks so much for calling in. Appreciate it. Of course. Thank you. Take care. Everyone's invited to give us a call. Evidence of Design 100.9 FM WXIR 585-219-8889, 585-219-8889. Matt, I wanted to jump off something that Aaron brought up there, which is like, you know, we can, yeah, I mean, okay, well, one, I never thought of making crime illegal. That's a great, that's a great idea. Yeah, I can't believe nobody's had that. Yeah. Thought before. So barring making crime illegal. Um, um, groundbreaking. <laughs> the, the idea of increasing funding for police to stop crimes. So the RPD, the RPD's budget has gotten a ton of coverage over the past two years, uh, past year in particular since the murder of George Floyd and also, of course, Daniel Prude here locally. The RPD's budget is around $90 million. It's been slightly cut from, let's say, $96 million uh, two years ago. So it's a very large budget. And there's around 700 uniformed officers, most of whom, by the way, don't live in the city of Rochester, the vast majority of which, and the vast majority of which are white. But the RPD themselves are saying that we can't solve these, this crime alone. We need everyone in society to come together. Boom. Completely agree. I don't think it's a reasonable solution to sort of solve crime by increasing policing. I think we need an adequate police force for the needs of our society. And we're definitely willing to engage in a, in a debate about what an adequate police force might be. But even the RPD themselves this week in these announcements are saying, we need everyone to come together to solve these crimes. We cannot do it alone. And so what does that mean, everyone coming together? Well, I think that can manifest as solving some of the structural issues that would cause crime. To begin with, Aaron was bringing up homelessness and unemployment. Study after study after study shows a strong link between crime, poverty, and inequality. Study after study. There are more crimes committed in the city of Rochester than there are in the suburbs. Why? There's more people, you know, in a sort of square footage in the city. But also, more importantly, I would argue that because poverty is concentrated in the city, And therefore, the more concentration of poverty you see, the more visible the inequality is, the more likely crime will occur. Why? There are different theories of crime, why that happens. There could be an economic rationalization theory saying, well, I could work for McDonald's for X amount of dollars per hour, or I could do crime which pays more. You know, there you go. That's one theory. Yeah, why why would I... Why would I work at McDonald's eight hours a day, you know, 
selling people Big Macs through a drive-thru for, you know, what, twelve and a half dollars an hour when I could be making, you know, hundreds of bucks, hundreds of dollars uh, a day, you know, selling drugs on the street. Right. Why? Why? But, but, I mean, it, it's, it's so many other different things, too, you know. Mm-hmm. It's like, uh, it's the fact that people in impoverished neighborhoods have less access to resources and are more susceptible to uh, mental health illnesses. Um, uh, poverty is so encompassing and it, it uh, affects people in so many different ways that the the reasons why poverty uh, increases the likelihood of being a victim of or uh, committing crime are, are multifarious. Right. Absolutely, Matt. And I was going to say, you know, the culture of poverty. And we get very, you, you tread on dangerous waters here whenever you talk about culture, poverty, you know, concentrations of, of uh, inequalities and things like that. There is certainly something to be said. I don't know if culture is the right word, but this sort of ecosystem that surrounds kind of what, what goes on uh, in impoverished conditions. And Matt, that can manifest, as you brought up, to mental health concerns. It can manifest as long-term, chronic, unresolved physical health concerns. It can manifest as not having free time in your day. Because you don't have a car, and therefore you have to sit on public transit for X amount of hours a day um, to get from A to B. It can manifest as not having resources to take care of your kids or your elderly you know, parents, and therefore having to spend more time out of your day to travel to you know, A and B and take care of other people, because you can't pay someone else to do it for you. It can manifest as trying to learn how to fix your dilapidated home on your own, because with, with, with subpar materials because you can't pay for someone just to come in and give you new windows, right? So poverty is the culture of poverty, the ecosystem of poverty manifests itself in many different ways, all of which tend to be negative for people, whether it's physical health, mental health, access to free time, access to resources, it all manifests as negative. And therefore, that that the summation of manifestation of negativity is hand in hand then with crime, um, whether it's violent crime or not, uh, because it's either economically rational to do so, or um, there are you know uh, gangs and whatnot, different meaning-making systems. If you have your white picket fence in a suburban house, in a uh, then your meaning-making is just working to save up for your next vacation to go with your kids. If you'll never be able to go on a vacation with your kids because you live in poverty, that is not a meaning-making system for you. And therefore, there are other meaning-making systems in your life, such as gangs, perhaps, to give you a semblance of identity and control and opportunity. So, uh, you know, this could be... There are books uh, on this. And so I just want to say that... Solving poverty goes a long way to solving crime. It is borne out study after study after study. And here's the point I want to make, though. It's for all the counter-arguments that you'll see in the DNC and the city newspaper and all of these conservative commentators saying, if you live in poverty, it's your fault because you're lazy. Why don't you just work hard and get out of it? Do me a favor. For all those people who are in poverty in the city of Rochester, which, to remind you, the poverty rate is 33%. And there's 230,000 people in Rochester. I'm guessing on these numbers here, but they're, they're in the ballpark. So 33% of 230,000 people, that's tens of thousands of people. Do me a favor. Go on Indeed.com right now and find me 60,000 jobs available in Rochester. 
for someone who doesn't have a car, maybe, that will pay you a non-impoverished wage. Do me a favor right now. Go to Glassdoor.com, Indeed.com. Go to Craigslist. LinkedIn. LinkedIn. Find me. Facebook jobs. Find me 60,000 jobs right now in Rochester that will work for people to not have them be impoverished. Oh, wait. You can't do that because that's how capitalism works, folks. It's a game of musical chairs, and you better be the one who ain't standing when the music stops. That's the whole point of how capitalism works, right? Is you hope that you're not the one who's going to be standing. Because if you are, then you're going to be the one who's subject to, uh, you know, social and political ostracization. And so what you can do, maybe you're a lucky one, and you can train yourself really, really good to be, at, to be good at musical chairs. You know, you can go get your degree. You can... Um, There's some guy, like, listening right now, like... Cucklord sixty six was just like no sixty thousand jobs I'll find him <laughs> so show this guy <laughs> exactly you can train yourself you can do all you're supposed to do and become really good at musical chairs guess what if there's still only ten chairs and there's twelve people playing the game there's two people who are losing out so uh, the point of all this is to say <laughs> if we're gonna want to fight crime I think it makes more sense to invest in getting rid of poverty and segregation and lack of access to material needs than it does to say to increase policing when even the police themselves say that they need help with this. At the same time, I want to recognize that getting rid of poverty and lack of access to material resources is challenging and there's not one magic solution. As I mentioned, find me 60,000 well-paying jobs right now in Rochester. They don't exist. So how do we do that? Well, I'm not sure what the one solution is, but what I would say that as a macroeconomic scale in our society, we could increase taxes on the wealthiest earners, because as I mentioned, the wealthiest 10% of people control 70% of all of the wealth in the country, and the wealthiest, or the 20% the of highest income earners take in over 50% of all the income. I would say that we could increase taxes on the wealthiest as one place to start, and then use those resources to fund social services. That's just one, one place to start. And those social services could manifest as universal basic income. They could manifest as healthcare as a human right. It could manifest as housing as a human right. That's just one place to start. I think that that is a more long-term sustainable solution that actually benefits human beings more than the very easy-to-say solution of go work hard and find a job. Does that, does that make Is that fair, Matt? Oh, I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm a pretty big uh, bootstraps guy. Yeah, you got big bootstraps on right now, I'll tell you what. <laughs> pretty big bootstraps. Um, so, yeah, you know, I hope that makes sense. But, Matt, we, let's turn our attention now to the last part of today's show. This is Evidence of Design on 100.9 FM WXIR in Rochester. Let's bring up critical race theory again, Matt. Oh, why don't we? <laughs> it's been a while. I've been, been, been hitting all the other... Uh, the, all the... Uh, 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 controversial topics today. Let's make it a a bowling turkey. <laughs> exactly, a bowling turkey. That's what we're doing. So our bowling turkey this hour is to talk about critical race theory. Matt, a few episodes ago, we brought on Dr. Joanne Larson, who was gracious enough to join us. Did we? Yes, you were here. I was in this room. I remember it. Uh, she's professor at the U of R's Warner School of Education to talk about critical race theory with us. You can check out that episode on our on our pod, you know, wherever you get your podcast for evidence of design. Anyways, 
would recommend listening to that to get you know an hour-long conversation about what critical race theory is. Well, still in the news because, yeah, it's become a culture war item. <laughs> it is the latest in a long line of uh, things that we're upset about. Yes. And it's it's really, uh, it, I, I'm still floored that people are talking about critical race theory. You know, usually you go to college to learn all this stuff, that f- these fancy words that you'll never invoke in conversations. Remember learning about critical race theory? And now people are, are having conversations. Suddenly about my it. education is relevant. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. Do you think anyone has actually read articles about critical race theory who's critiquing it? No. Has anyone read Derek Bell or <laughs> Kimberly Crenshaw? Absolutely not. But hey, doesn't mean we can't critique it because this is the 21st century. Yeah. <laughs> stuff we don't know anything about. Call. So um, this week, while we're talking about it, the hook this week is that uh, in, in, a, in a session in Congress, you might have seen this, General Mark Miley or Milley, I'm sorry, I don't know how to pronounce the last name either, Mark Miley or Milley, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, he had a uh, pretty, pretty interesting response to Florida Congressman Matt Gates. Matt Gates is currently uh, being investigated for having sex with underage kids. <laughs> for sex trafficking. Yeah. <laughs> Minors. There's one, uh, you know. You know uh, Context is important. <laughs> it's, it's an interesting guy. Transparency. It's about accountability. By, by the way, charges are expected to be announced, if at all, in, in the Matt Gates saga within like a week. So early July, I think I've, I've seen. So, And also Matt Gates, who's under investigation by the FBI, just tweeted this week that they should defund the FBI. <laughs> And he, he later deleted this tweet. Oh, I didn't know that he was a comrade. <laughs> he misses Donald Trump, I'll tell you that much. They probably go golfing every day. Um, so anyways, Matt, let's listen to what General Mark Miley had to say in response to Florida Congressman Matt Gates alleging that the military root out critical race theorists. Again, this is around two-minute clip. General Mark Miley, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Um, first of all, on the issue of critical race theory, et cetera, I'll, I'll obviously have to get much smarter on whatever the theory is. Um, but I do think it's important, actually, uh, for those of us in uniform to be open-minded and be widely read. And the United States Military Academy is a university. Uh, and it is important that we train and we understand. Uh, and I, I want to understand white rage. And I'm white. And I want to understand it. So what is it that caused thousands of people to assault this building and try to overturn the Constitution of the United States of America. What caused that? I want to find that out. I want to maintain an open mind here, and I do want to analyze it. It's important that we understand that, because our soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines, and Guardians, they come from the American people. So it is important that the leaders, now and in the future, do understand it. I've read Mao Zedong. I've read, I've read Karl Marx. I've read Lenin. That doesn't make me a communist. So what is wrong? with understanding, having some situational understanding about the country for which we are here to defend. And I personally find it offensive that we are accusing the United States military, our general officers, our commissioned, non-commissioned officers of being, quote, woke or something else because we're studying some theories that are out there. That was started at Harvard Law School years ago, and it proposed that there were laws in the United States, antebellum laws prior to the Civil War, that led to uh, a power differential with African Americans that were three-quarters of a human being when this country was formed. And then we had a civil war and emancipation proclamation to change it. And we brought it up to the Civil Rights Act in 1964. It took another 100 years to change that. So look it, I do want to know. And I respect your service, and you and I are both Green Berets. But I want to know. And it matters to our military and the discipline and cohesion of this military. And I thank you for the opportunity to make a comment on that. Thank you, General. Uh, changing.
Again, that was General Mark Miley, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, in response to Florida Congressman Matt Gates this week in congressional testimony. I like how he's like, I want to understand critical race theory so I can kill it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, the problem with, with, with the general statement there is that, uh, Matt, we've read Lenin, Stalin, or not One of Stalin. Us has. We, we've read Lenin, Mao, Marx, and that does make us communists. No, <laughs> so, you know, huge problem. I haven't read those, and I'm a communist. <laughs> What does that make me? <laughs> what is even a communist? Who knows? <laughs> Who even knows what that means to be a communist? Not what you think it means, probably, because we all have different conceptions of what a communist is. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you know, obviously I find that a compelling statement from the general because I agree with it. But it's also it's also nice to hear it from uh, someone in power. You know, because we are lacking so much uh, people in power these days saying the right things in, in response to people who are not saying the right things. And that, that's yeah. a good thing to hear, I think. Um, <laughs> Matt Gates, dude. Yeah, they like uh, the uh, switch camera views over to him for a second to show him like shaking his head and, and just like sneering and stuff. And his forehead takes up like half the perspective. I mean, you know, to critique someone's body, yeah, you know, he's he's definitely a member of Slytherin, is what all I'm trying to say. <laughs> that maybe I don't know, who knows? But it's good stuff. It's good stuff. Uh, critical race theory, yeah. If if someone's giving you a hard time about critical race theory, just just ask them if they've actually read Derek Bell or Kimberly Crenshaw first. You know, the people who helped to work on and advance the theory that. Uh, racism in America is real and that it manifests in social, political, and legal differences for people of color and those who are white. Just, <laughs> you know, I don't have much bandwidth to, to deal with that culture war because it's, it's so obviously silly. But uh, it's also real because people are bringing it up and people don't believe that systemic racism exists or even that there's inequality in the United States of America. And if you don't think that it exists, and you don't think there's anything we can do about it. The, the, two, the two hot topic issues in America right now, is racism real, and should we have more bike lanes? <laughs> That's what people are getting the most upset about. Right. And remember, uh, we don't want people who believe stupid things to be in positions of power, and therefore it's not helpful when they're voted in They're doing a great of job power. of that. Yeah. So that's why that's why voting in politics matters, folks. And with that, we got to end our show. Thanks so much for tuning in to your local grassroots community radio station, 100.9 WXIR in Rochester. This was Evidence of Design. You can always find our past episodes available as a podcast wherever you find your podcasts. We're also on YouTube if you search for the Evidence of Design YouTube channel. Stay in touch with us throughout the week. You can email us at radio eod at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at radio eod as well why radio eod well that of course stands for radio evidence of design i was your host jason taylor joined in wxir studios by my good friend and co-host matt treadwell so long and i was going to say mary lawrence but she's not here so just us today until next time folks be well be safe take care and bye-bye